Our state-by-state -state look at coronavirus trends is more encouraging this Sunday. Welcome to the Alt-Normal, an exploration of the diverse voices on planet Earth. The wildfires that have devastated parts of Australia. Doing the critical work of rebuilding a healthier, more sustainable alternative future at the intersection of self, community, and planet. We live in uncertain times, a powerful moment of revolution. How we choose to steer the path will determine what kind of alt-normal we consciously remake together. Everyone has a part to play. Let's rise. Shift and support this exciting new reality in the making. The alt-normal. Welcome to the Alt Normal, episode 12. I'm so excited for the conversation today with our guest, Shonda Brown. I am the host, Tiffany Wen. And if you're new, so happy to have you. If you're a regular coming back, tuning in, thanks so much. If you find this conversation lighting you up, please show us the love and give us a subscribe rating or review. We really want to amplify these stories as far and wide as we can. So why we are here, what is the alt normal? The alt normal is a show that centers diversity as a beautiful and absolutely critical force for rebuilding this post pandemic world that we're living in. It really began with the personal question, how might we reframe this new normal that was handed to us as crisis and actually create an alt-normal or an alternative reality that we can consciously remake together in our diversity and our gifts for a more resilient and healthier culture? So in this grave crisis of systems collapse, racial injustice, global economic disaster, lies this opportunity for a massive paradigm shift in how we relate to ourselves, our community, and the planet. The old systems and ways are dying out, and something new is actually emerging. So we really need this new story for humanity. That's kind of why we're here, to explore that new story in our gifts, in our diversity, and leaning into the complexity of who we are, not simply what's perceived as just normal or comfortable. So just want to give a big thank you to Zest, which is a plant-based restaurant here in Ubud, Bali. Um, they have this beautiful mission, powered by plants made for people. So with their help, we're able to host this conversation and beyond just making amazing vegan food, they also bring people together, community together, which we're going to talk all about today. And we're so, so grateful to be here. And lastly, this podcast was produced by Resonance, which is a creative practice specializing in the design of your highest brand intelligence. Our mission is to humanize people's and businesses' brand stories, create compelling content ecosystems that deliver long-lasting impact, and help people and businesses authentically grow their audience in the world. So really, really grateful for this conversation and to introduce fellow New Yorker and goddess, Shonda Brown. Hello, hello. <laughs> so 
so grateful to be here. Thank you, Tiffany. <laughs> so, so awesome. Shauna Brown is a world traveler, entrepreneur, adventurer, and community builder deeply interested in social impact. Prior to living in Bali, she was the founder of Goddess Institute to empower women to connect with their divine feminine through exploring conscious sexuality. She was also working to help build a startup into a $5 billion fintech company to provide student loan benefits for Americans. A year and a half ago, she left her life in New York City behind to step into the unknown and continue her spiritual journey of meditation, volunteering, qigong, Taoist tantric studies, and living life to the fullest every day. Wow, so she has been traveling in India, Nepal, Sri Lanka, Thailand, Mexico, America, Hong Kong, and Indonesia, where we are today, to explore what's possible, and has found that the braver she is at stepping into the unknown, the luckier she is. At the beginning of the pandemic, she came back to settle in Bali and helped launch the End of Life Collective with the aim to reduce the taboo around end-of-life conversations and to transform the seemingly difficult terrain into one of deep engagement, insight, compassion, and empowerment. She's the co-creator of Bali Live, a virtual festival series to raise funds for Balinese livelihood who have been severely impacted by the COVID pandemic. She is currently researching an approach to implement universal basic income in Bali to create a potentially better financial system for the collective. Shonda also helps run the Burning Man Camp Mosaic and loves the community surrounding her around the world. Mm -hmm. Damn, Shonda, <laughs> how many lives have you lived? <laughs> so excited to really touch on all of these things that you do that you're passionate about and really weave like this thread of your life and bring it to life here. I'm so excited to be sharing this with you. Yay. That's one thing. I'm just passionate about life. Mm. It's kind of appropriate that we're here at Zest because Zest is one of the words that I love about having this zest for life and just living each day to the fullest, wherever that takes us. So, and you really live it. So before we jump into all of these things and projects and initiatives that are really driving solutions in the world, I think that's a huge theme in your work. I'd like to start in the beginning mm -hmm. of Shonda Brown. So, you know, I see you as someone really showing up in your gifts and authenticity to be able to do the things you do. And I would love to explore kind of thinking about your childhood and where you came from. What were some of those core values or like guiding North stars that really influenced your identity growing up? What an interesting question. And in fact, I love that you're asking this because I attribute so much of my life to the opportunities that I've been given as a small child. Like my family is so impactful in my life. And in, in fact, I'd say that my, my mother and my sister, my father and my little brother are my best friends. Like we talk all the time and have an incredible relationship. I say that I've won the family lottery all the time because I'm just, I, it's nothing that I did to be able to be born in the environment that I grew up in. So I was born in Albany, Oregon. It's a small town in the middle of the Willamette Valley in America. 
And uh, my parents met at a personal development seminar, truly based on love and improving themselves and working on the, the world in general. So I was literally a love child that grew up in this environment of, you know, my dad singing me songs of can do, can do, this big girl can do, and having those positive messages growing up of anything is possible. And that, you know, it's my own limiting belief systems that have any impact on what isn't possible in my own mind. And so I've always been surrounded by the messages of what, what it is to me to create that synergy and what is possible in the world and to getting beyond my own limiting mindset to be able to create more and see the big picture. And, you know, it's not a perfect childhood by any means. Along with that comes my own, my own self-limiting beliefs of when I know that everything is possible, you know, I'm the only one that's limiting this and the, the struggles with perfection of an overachiever of wanting to do all the things. And that's what has led me here now. It's all this like weaving back and forth of, you know, going, going, going and having this very strong masculine side versus now stepping in and having the complete opposite of coming to Bali and being in this very feminine surrender mode of allowing and receiving. So I, I am so grateful for the opportunities of my, my family to be able to offer me what I have. I, I literally did nothing to be born to a loving family that provided me education and the support and unconditional love with everything. But it's also a two-way street with our, our family. Like we work on a relationship and we prioritize that. And so it takes things like me, um, you know, Burning Man has been a, a big thing for me with, with uh, my entire life. And I wanted to share this with my family. So every year I would come back uh, from Burning Man and say, mom and dad, my sister, Monica, and I like absolutely love Burning Man. You would love it too. We should totally go together. And they're like, okay, let's go to Burning Man. So, um, I've been burning for, this would have been my 13th year. And so my family has been with me. This would have been our seventh year together. Um, so we burn and go to Burning Man together where it's a total expression of, anything that you want to be. It's like a, a radical self-expression is what they, they call it. And so to be able to see your family in that sort of environment where it's like, this is me as a whole complete human, you know, we don't have that traditional mother, daughter, uh, father, uh, relationship. It's humans. You know, we see each other as humans where we still have those roles, but you know, I really love them as people and as the, the friends and the, the parents that we are. And so we truly support each other with that. Yeah. The self-expression. And I, I also love that they met at a personal development experience right. seminar. And, you know, I see development, personal development being a big theme in your life mm -hmm. as well. And all the things that you've pursued and, man, we'll have to have a whole other conversation about what it's like to be a Burning Man with your family. <laughs> it can be a very spiritual experience to go to Burning Man, let alone bringing people that are dearest to you in your hearts to have that experience with you. Yeah. And maybe that'll come up a little bit later on. And I kind of want to now shift into your background as a business development person, mm. which were the threads that seem to inform the work that you're doing today. Mm -hmm. So you have this background in biz dev, right? Yep. And as we'll continue to unfold this conversation, it seems that you've really magnetized mission-driven sort of organizations into that work. 
um, whether that's been financial independence, um, end-of-life planning, conscious sexuality, fighting food security, um, and most recently looking to you know, create universal basic income for people mm -hmm. in Bali. So in the past, you worked for a company called SoFi, yep. uh, which describes itself as, quote, a different kind of finance company that's helping people get their money right. And I really loved that they have a different way of framing financial independence. It's not about like achieving a certain number. It's just about finding that thing within yourself that feels right for you and be able to express that through how you grow your money, let's mm -hmm. say. So I would just love to like hear a little bit about that, Shonda Brown, back in New York City <laughs> in that world. Um, yeah. Can you tell us what it was like just to be in that world, however you want to take that and just what inspired you to choose that path? Wow. What a different life that was back then. It seems so crazy to think about, um, being here now, but, um, this is when I was living in San Francisco. Oh, San Francisco. Um, yeah, I was in San Francisco, middle of tech, uh, city, Silicon Valley. Uh, and I just, I absolutely love people, love people so much. It's just, uh, it's the greatest part of my life is the the community that surrounds me and, and people and, and connection. Like that's my big theme for this year is connection, uh, connecting with self, connecting with others. And when I think about my life, uh, it's those connections that have been the most impactful. Uh, so when I was in San Francisco, I just happened to meet some amazing people through different ways and got introduced to the, the CEO of this tiny startup at the time called SoFi, Social Finance, um, with the goal to uh, create the, the student loan refinancing market in the United States. So basically, student loans are a $1.4 trillion crisis in America. It's the next bubble uh, after mortgages. And so this is a huge crisis in America and it really uh, impacts early career professionals specifically because they have an average of $36,000 of debt when they graduate university. And so it doesn't allow them to buy homes, to start businesses, to start families. And so this is a larger economic issue that's facing people. So we created the ability for people to refinance student loans after they graduate from the, the federal student loan to a lower interest uh, loan so that they are able to afford uh, all the other things in their life. So the goal was to be able to help early career professionals get on with their life and focus on more important things like living rather than finances. Mm -hmm. And for me, like it's interesting to have both sides. I feel that I'm a bridge between the spiritual woo woo <laughs> world and the, the business executive suit wearing that goes into a, a boardroom and talks to CEOs and have that connection of the, the two and speak in a way that both sides can understand, uh, depending on who that audience is. And so my background, I'm, I'm a super numbers nerd. Like <laughs> I, I tested uh, number one for women in Oregon for math studies back when I was in high school or was it middle school back in the day. And so I had, uh, always had this economic and finance background but that's not what I was passionate about. I'm passionate about people. And so being able to work in a business development aspect to be able to create uh, partnerships and synergy within that financial data-driven background just made so much sense to me. So when I spoke to SoFi, we started as this small company and we're working on the business development side of things to be able to have partnerships with companies to 
have student loan benefits and be able to let people know about what was possible on a better side of things. So started out with a few employees at the beginning, um, and I was flying all over the country, you know, talking to people, educating them about what student loans are and, and how there's a better solution for this on a financial standpoint. Um, and I kept going back and forth to New York City because a lot of clients were there and came back and let the, the CEO and CFO know, like, hey, there's a huge need in New York. We should, you know, have an office there. We're, we're growing now. At this point, we were close to 1,600 employees at that time. So it was rapid growth uh, Silicon Valley startup. And he's like, great, you're moving to New York and starting an office. And I was like, whoa, 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 wait, I was talking about someone else, but hey, why not? Like, let's just surrender. Like, everyone should live in New York once in their life, right? And I was like, okay, let's check this out and see what it is. So um, moved to New York and started the office for SoFi there. Um, and our business development team moved to New York City predominantly. And uh, it was an incredible experience. And that's where I feel like so much of my life just catapulted into a different direction of having this New York drive and the amazing community and tribe that I I found and was enveloped into in New York City of people that work hard, play hard, chill hard, have mm. this spiritual aspect about making all the things happen and living life while doing what we can to improve the lives of everyone around us. Mm. And so... Yeah. <laughs> wow. That is so, you touched on so many things that really resonate, but I love that piece about bridging worlds, the mm. spiritual world, maybe the burner world, the world that is softer, more feminine with the world that, you know, gets shit done, that can enter a boardroom and really um, educate uh, powerful decision makers about real problems and how to bring real solutions. And I love that you embody both. Yeah. And, um, Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, it's beautiful to hear you articulate and even reflect about it now being where you are. And um, I kind of want to shift this into the Goddess Institute that, ah. you, that you founded. And, you know, when I think of the world of business development, maybe you can tell me your thoughts. It, it seems like, yeah, a very masculine world and maybe one that's not really embodied in the body. It's way more in the head, way more data-driven and numbers crunching, you know, which has its place, right? Um, and is a useful tool, but it's not the whole story of what it means to maybe be a holistically healthy human being. Mm -hmm. So, you founded this organization called the Goddess Institute, mm -hmm. where you say, and I quote you, exploring this path of conscious sexuality has helped me get out of my head and into my body. As a result, I'm healthier, happier, and more in flow than I've ever been. By falling well said. In <laughs> I'm still quoting you. <laughs> By falling in love with myself, I'm falling in love with my life, my work, and the people around me. Everything is en fuego. Love that. When surrendering to receive the joyful opportunities that show up as a result of being in alignment with what really matters. So serious kudos to like naming that mm. and being able to articulate that, you know, having had all these other experiences, you know, that society maybe like puts front and center, you know, whatever's more masculine or just like, you know, productive in the way that we think of productivity. But what about this other side, the duality? So 
Yeah, I would love to kind of explore this passion of yours, conscious sexuality, and hear kind of how did you enter this world? What was your personal quest? Um, and what inspired you to really, yeah, create this safe and supportive space for sisterhood? <laughs> oh, that's such a great question, if I do say so myself. <laughs> Well, it's exactly what we were talking about. Um, when I had moved to New York City, um, I felt like that was such a masculine environment of like being on the startup train of developing something that was so exciting and, and putting all of my effort into uh, to building this, this company and going out and meeting new people. It was just super intense. I wasn't taking my care of myself physically, you know, sleeping four hours a night, going out all the time and working and uh, making things happen, a lot of output. Um, and I realized after uh, a couple of years of this, my health was really failing. I had, um, I was borderline adrenal fatigue of just putting it out there all the time, even though I knew uh, about all these practices, I've been studying uh, Tantra or conscious sexuality, this, this spiritual aspect of really listening to our body and our own body's divine wisdom been studying that for you know 11 years at this at this time but i hadn't been applying it in the ways that uh would really integrate that into my business life i had like separated that as like okay this is business and you know then this is my life and when i finally made that connection of like this is all integrated together like what if i really showed up as my full true self in my business life and integrated this whole aspect of conscious sexuality into all of my business meetings even, and had this intuition of my own divine wisdom of my body and getting out of my head and into my body, which is what we, we say is one of the mission statements of Goddess Institute. Um, and so when I started applying this, I realized things just became so much more in flow. I was less stressed. My, my stress levels decreased 20 times. I was happier, healthier, and just things became in fuego, as I, as I called it. Um, and I was sharing this with friends. They were noticing this and uh, like, where can we find resources about this? And so we ended up having a weekend uh, that we called the Goddess Institute weekend where I, I brought together some of the, the best facilitators. Um, Lauren Harkness came and, and led this weekend uh, after this goddess journey sail around Thailand that we did. Uh, where this was inspired and it ended up being so impactful for people. It was incredibly life-changing and seeing how just that one weekend of coming together and bringing the sisterhood support where women would um, really tap into that inner wisdom. Uh, you know, people started companies, uh, they left jobs and relationships that were no longer supportive for them. They found the loves of their life, you know, all within like a week or two of this, this, uh, weekend retreat. And at that point I was like, you know what, this is everything. Like, this is where I need to focus my energy. And I shifted away from SoFi into dedicating my life more towards the study of conscious sexuality and to helping share that with women. Because I realized that a lot of the women specifically in New York and in my friend group could really benefit from this as well as my own study of being able to be in balance with my feminine, which is something that is a constant work and, and journey of flowing in between the two. Wow. That is such a natural progression, you know, and to really honor yourself as the goddess is, 
easier said than done, you know, especially when your reality is reinforcing the opposite. It's really up to you to, yeah, like do it for yourself, but also find others who, who, who really want and need it. And for those who listening who might not really know fully what conscious sexuality means, how, how do you like define or talk about that? What does that look like in practice for you? And maybe just like bring or color some kind of anecdote to, to help us anchor into that. Yeah. That's why we try to keep it as simple as possible for, I mean, the name of goddess Institute is just, we are all goddesses. There's this light within us and gods and goddesses. There's this lot light within us of just getting ourselves out of the way so we can let that shine. And that's what conscious sexuality or Tantra, we don't use that word because in the Western uh, society, we tend to associate that with sex, but it's all just about this connection to oneness. It's that energy that, that connects all of us to this greater divine being and being able to get ourselves out of the way so that we can let that shine through and really feel that energy within ourselves with each other and bring consciousness to that and intention to every moment and making every moment a ritual and making every moment meaningful and impactful and connection with others and with self. Um, for me, that's what conscious sexuality is. You started goddess Institute back in your New York days. And, um, I would, I, I assume that you've carried the spirit of being a goddess throughout and within you to present day. And I would just love to hear like, if there's a specific ritual or a specific practice that you do for yourself every day that allows you to tap into your inner goddess and remember that. Oh, that's a great question. And that's one thing that I have really, uh, worked on this past year is developing what that routine is every day and how to honor myself, how to connect with my divine inner goddess. Uh, and that's shifted so much over the years as I've been learning and developing things. But I think that the one thing that is most impactful is the practice of Qigong. Um, and that's something that is just being able to move our own chi, our own life force energy in our bodies. And I've adapted this into everything that I do. Like yesterday I went to ecstatic dance to just celebrate life and the amazing success of Bali live. And it's just playing with that energy, our own life force energy and feeling that with other people that we interact with of like being able to move that and open up different channels within ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so that can be, for me, that's a morning practice of just having a few different poses to be able to open up those channels and feel that energy flowing, balance the masculine and feminine, which is something that I've been working on, uh, over the past few years. But I really, uh, learned a lot about this, not only from my dear friend, Jim Rohr, who first turned me on to Qigong back in New York city, but also at the Taoist tantric teacher training, uh, with Minke DeVos and Shashi Saluna where we learned how to teach Qigong. And actually in the first uh, Bali Live, I did a workshop on Qigong practices and had was leading people through these different exercises of just flowing with and moving this energy and just feeling that. So it's very easy to, to get into Qigong. It's, it doesn't have to be a, a in-depth experience. It's literally just visualizing and feeling this pearl of energy and starting from our center point or down in our lower Dantian, right below your belly button, feeling this energy and just visualizing this moving through our body. 
and moving the breath as you move this in and out and just transferring that to different areas and sharing that and feeling this enveloping around and increasing that or decreasing that and understanding the cycles of life and the seasons and the times of day and just being in flow with everything that life is. Wow. <laughs> I wish you guys could see Shonda was just flowing so gracefully and I could just even visualize the energy watching you. I literally am just doing Qigong right here right now. Aren't I? My hand, I speak with my hands quite a lot. You can't see that right now, but <laughs> maybe you can feel it. And, um, I think that's such a perfect segue to kind of this transition of leaving New York, which I really want to tap a little bit into. You were mentioning, right? Like imagining the seasons within ourselves, right? The, the guiding forces and teachers that nature and its elements can be into mm. our own lives. And at a certain point you did leave New York city behind. Um, and I recall you saying that you lived in the West village, um, which, you know, is a really beautiful part of New York city. Mm -hmm. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with it and eventually you started to travel. So why did you decide to leave at a certain point? And what was your intention for starting this journey? It's really interesting to look back and see how everything is so perfect exactly the way it is, that everything has led up to this moment right here. And even though there were points that were very difficult in my life at that time, I'm so grateful that everything happened. And I know that this happens, uh, everything happens for a reason or, or the perfection of the universe that has my back and supports me. But it was a really challenging time at that time. I was in a relationship that I thought was you know, the dream relationship and that we were on this certain path and building a life together and very, uh, dramatically ended very shortly. Um, and at that point I was just had an opportunity to reflect upon my life about what I wanted to create and what I was waiting for. And this, I kept coming back to what my dream looks like. And my, my, my bestie, uh, Whitney just reminded me that we were in Sedona and, uh, was with, uh, this woman in the, this magical vortex place and talking about what my dream life would look like. And I was just channeling things and not thinking. And I didn't remember that I said this, but I was like, you know, my dream life looks at like living in Bali and just being able to flow with and, you know, creating a great community around me. But like, that's not possible because I'm doing this life. And, and I look back like two years ago and I've created that life for myself. And so leaving that behind and being able to, uh, just take that choice. So I made the choice then of this is a great opportunity to take a shift and redirect and just fully surrender to the unknown, step into something and do the things that I've always wanted to, but didn't have enough time. Like I never prioritized that because I'd been working so hard on all the projects that I was working on previously. It's like, you know, I've always wanted to do a Vipassana and take 10 days and go into complete silence and just focus on meditation. I'm going to go ahead and do that. And I set out on travel to, to go travel for six months, you know, rented my apartment out and was like, I'll see you guys in six months. I love you community. It's like the greatest thing for me, but, uh, I'm just stepping in and seeing what's possible. And that six months has now been a year and a half because <laughs> it was just this spiritual journey of like, 
allowing the next thing to unfold and not making plans, which is so, so different from my masculine mindset. But that meditation practice was just the best way to start things off. And I came to, to Bali for that. And I've been spending a lot of time in Bali over this, the past year and a half, um, just feels like home in the spiritual journey that's here been on some incredible journeys and everything has been building on each other to be the, the perfect experience. And as I mentioned, like the, the more, the braver that I am at stepping into the unknown, the luckier I am. And mm-hmm. it's just allowing those things to happen and unfold in the perfect way that has led me to here now, which I can take no credit for whatsoever. <laughs> it's just like letting that happen. I love to hear you articulate that because it's so relatable. And I mm-hmm. think for people who haven't really stepped into the unknown and left behind their comforts and their materials and really gone out there without a real plan or a real objective, but just trusting in this foot forward, next foot forward mm-hmm. and to allow and to unfold and to be more in the feminine flow of life it can be really magical. And, you know, um, I, I think I heard you on, um, like an Instagram podcast where you were talking about your time volunteering in the slums of Bangalore. And I actually saw a video of you like singing with these kids and you looked so happy and so in your flow and just, yeah, like just absolutely where you were supposed to be. And I would, I know there's so many experiences within a travel, within a travel of finding yourself, but I don't know, that one felt, um, compelling for me to ask you about like, what was that time like for you? And yeah, maybe share a little bit about that particular experience. Yeah. So this is again, one of those things where my dear friend, Troy Swanson told me many years ago that, um, uh, a life message that he lives by. And if it's a, if it's a dear friend that I love and trust tells me that I must do something that's life-changing, I always do it. That's how I got into Burning Man to Tony Robbins. And when he asked me to come to this deep dive with the Alphabet Club, which is a, a nonprofit charity that he has uh, started to be able to help build schools and libraries in the slums in, in India and throughout Nepal as well, uh, with our dear friend, Justin, who's here in Bali that I ended up living with it when I first came to Bali. And I love how it's all connected. Um, he was doing a deep dive in India for a few days and I was like, I'm in, I've been wanting to go visit these sites for forever. And so I invited, uh, one of my, my besties, Whitney and my mom to come along and we all met up in Bangalore in India. And uh, went and experienced what this is like and visiting the schools that uh, we had built through raising funds and went and these children are just so happy and beautiful and would take us by the hands and show us around their homes which were literally dumps like garbage dumps and seeing how happy they were and grateful to be able to go to a school and have a, a clean shirt that they could go and learn and working on the the education aspects of having women and little girls being able to read. And it's just so beautiful to be able to experience that and see what's possible in other ways because it's out of our little minds and realizing like how much my problems don't really matter in the big scheme of things. It's all just our own self-limiting beliefs again. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's yeah. You know, sometimes the happiest people are those that 
live the simplest lives. Well, that's what we see in Bali here right now. It's like the joy and the happiness of that community. It's that connection mm -hmm. that we don't need material things. Mm -hmm. Like I set out from, from New York a year and a half ago with one carry on suitcase. I don't need much. <laughs> and I'm so, I'm really happy right now. And we get so caught up in that cycle. And, um, I found myself doing that quite a bit and, you know, it doesn't really matter in the long scheme of things. So, yeah. And it's just interesting, the duality of like spirituality and materialism, right? As humans, we just generally collect a lot of things, but then when you hit that point in your own growth, where you realize you don't need all that and space actually opens up mm -hmm. for new stuff that's not necessarily material, but express themselves in other ways mm -hmm. and sort of on this theme of yeah bali i know that you've really created a lot of abundance in 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 your passions here mm -hmm. and i want to touch on all of these things so first off i just want to say congratulations on wrapping bali live 2 there have been two and I want to get into all of what this is and what you've accomplished. Um, and just the incredible fundraiser that you are and that you demonstrate. But first I kind of want to set up the sort of reality of what Bali has looked like since COVID. Hit. Yeah. Okay. So, um, and, and I like to start it off kind of on a metaphorical sense. So COVID obviously has been a literal death. I mean, there have been over 1 million deaths all over the world, but also it's been a death metaphorically, Yeah. right? Systems are dying, old stories are dying out. And from that death is emerging a new story and a new way of interrelating, mm -hmm. interbeing. And during COVID in Bali, this is pulled from an Al Jazeera article just to like center people on what it's been the like. reality right now, the reality mm -hmm. right now. And then I want you to color this, but the article went on to say on the Indonesian resort Island of Bali, where more than three quarters of the economy is linked to tourism, the de facto border closure could prove catastrophic. And it has for the population of 4.2 million people. From our research, we know that about 80% of Bali's GDP is based on tourism. And for the 170,000 Balinese living on less than $2 a day, mm -hmm. there is no plan B. There is just no plan B, right? And I know that this is probably sort of a grim way of shifting into Bali Live, but for those who aren't really following Bali at the moment in the news or don't really have you know, access to what's happening, I think it's really important to ground ourselves in the sort of dire straits that the Balinese people are in as a result of COVID, both on a health perspective, but also economic. Mm -hmm. So to begin, can you tell us what problems you personally saw that inspired you to start Bali Live? Because it has to start on a personal note. And I would love to know as a co as the co-founder what that was for you. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm really glad that we start by setting the stage of what's happening in Bali right now, because uh, it's easy to see things from an outside perspective of, oh, you know, this is this is literally paradise. It's so beautiful. And the spirituality of this land is so powerful. But the fact is that 80% of income has just disappeared overnight. Within a month, people no longer have any savings 
to be able to tide them over for the basic survival needs. As you said, $2 a day is what people live off of. And so not having that income and not having that saving structure um, is absolutely devastating uh, for the livelihood of Balinese who are struggling to eat and to feed their families. And so when my, my bestie Victorian and I came here um, intentionally in, in mid-March to be able to lock down for whatever was going to be happening, um, I was in India at the time, was like, I don't want to be in India during this. I'm going to go home to Mama Bali. <laughs> and, and we saw um, people in our local Banjar, which is the, the neighborhood, um, that's the, the unit structure of the, the Banjar, of people that were not able to even feed themselves that were uh, having a tough time even eating basic foods. And so we decided to buy food and, and just go and donate that to, to 60 families. However, we realized that week after week, this was not sustainable. Like we're just giving handouts and it felt really good for me personally to be able to connect with people and show that support. But what happens when I leave with this is not going to make any sort of long-term impact. Um, and so that's when we said we need to create something much bigger for that sustainable change because the pandemic is not leaving anytime soon. And so that's why Bali is impacted so much. Uh, there's need everywhere in the world, but Bali is this specific little bubble where the economy has crashed um, so much. Like in speaking to Nyoman, who is the founder of the Pasar Rakyat, the, the people's market that we just supported for the Bali Live 2 fundraiser, 95% of his business has um, disappeared, you know, within that, that first month. And so there is no income, there is no ability to uh, rely on that savings account. And it's, it's devastating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Food security, it's a worldwide issue. But as you said, you know, with a place like Bali, that's so dependent on tourism, tourism is dead at the moment. We don't know when it's coming back. And yeah, I guess, you know, for those who aren't really familiar, I'd love for you to share, like, what is the farmers, the people's farm or farmers? People's market. People's market yep. initiative. And you also are, are partnering with um, an organization called Copernic. Copernic, yes. Yeah. And I, I would love for you, because during COVID, a lot of people were, were kind of raising money or asking for donations and, you know, sending that money off to other organizations to handle. But it seems like you have a different model, taking your sort of superpower of connecting to people, creating partnerships, really bridging worlds. Like, how did you create this model that has the ability to have sustainable impact versus just let's just collect money and buy food and give it off to family? Yeah, and that's what we were doing to begin with. And it felt really good. But then looking at this longer term said, how can we make this a larger program that is just beyond giving fish away? How can we teach fish in some way? So reached out to Copernic, uh, which is the largest NGO here in Bali. They're the designated task force response for COVID. They've been the first responders for other crises, such as the Mount Lagoon eruption, which devastated Bali back then um, for uh, tourism as well. So they know what they're doing. And instead of me coming into a place that 
Um, you know, I'm a guest here. I'm a visitor. I don't know what Bali needs to make the largest income or impact, but there are people that do, that know this industry so much better, that know the communities that can work on existing structures and be able to just pump funds into that so it can make a larger ripple effect. And so that's what we asked Copernic is how can we help? Like what is needed in this, in, in Bali right now? And this was at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and they said, we actually need to find a sustainable way to, to feed people and have them farm themselves and be sustainable in their own family unit and create urban gardens. So those family compounds that don't have access to farmland can have uh, their own seedlings and grow their own food that's nutritious and be able to sustain themselves for the year or two to come until tourism returns again. And so we said, great, let's do it. Um, and this small idea that was me filming Victorian. He's a, a pretty awesome DJ, if I do say so myself. You can fangirl him. Um, and uh, was going to film him on just Instagram Live and give a gift and offer, you know, here's a free concert. Like, if you wanted to contribute to Bali, like, we'll, we'll donate funds to something that's impactful of creating the Urban Garden Initiative through Copernic. That then turned into what ended up being a 12-hour virtual festival with 32 artists from around the world and rallied support to raise $18,500 across 19,000 attendees in in the world that came and joined in for this epic concert. It was so much fun. It was such a blast and so impactful. We ended up having rock stars involved, Balinese rock stars that made urban gardening cool and uh, built what we called four empowerment gardens. Um, so the urban garden initiative became so much larger and the community took this on. And I think that's what Copernic was able to do is like ask the Bonjar, so local uh, communities, how can we support and how can we get involved to work on this together instead of coming in and saying, you know, this is what you need, uh, you know, through working on the getting back to Bangalore with the Alphabet Club uh, deep dive, uh, there are NGOs that are working there where a woman came in and said, you know what everyone needs in, in the slums is, uh, my favorite thing growing up was my Barbie doll. So everyone needs a Barbie doll. I'm going to do a fundraiser to give Barbie dolls to the slum children. It's like, you know what? They, I love that you're wanting to help, but what they really need is a blanket. <laughs> so it's, you need to be effective and smart about how to make the largest impact. And these are things that, um, that a lot of NGOs on the ground have that experience with. And so that's why I'm so grateful that we're able to work with Copernic to understand what's necessary and how to just help support them doing the awesome that they do in the world. That's so, so great that you just said that, you know, there's a difference between wanting to help and putting your own thoughts and assumptions onto that problem versus taking a step back, showing curiosity and empathy and asking, what do you guys need and how can I help solve or support? Mm -hmm. That's very, very different. And Mm -hmm. I'm really happy that you named that because I, I do think sustainability needs to, there are many ways to be sustainable, but that what you just described is such an important ingredient Mm -hmm. for that recipe of sustainable impact. And, um, yeah, I guess, you just wrapped Bali Live too. Do you want to just tell us? <laughs> like, I just want to just take a moment to celebrate that. And 
congratulations. You did an amazing thing and you really are not just raising money, but you're really educating and showing the power of partnership. Mm-hmm. And I would just like to give you space. It's not a specific question to just tell us how it was for you. What were your biggest highlights? What did you sort of receive as, wow, like goosebumps, right? <laughs> what, what, what impact have I now had as a result of really giving back to Mama Bali? First of all, it had nothing to do with me at all. It was just me getting out of the way and allowing an opportunity for others around the world that have such goodness um, to participate in supporting Mama Bali because it's given us so much. This this land is so powerful for individuals that have visited here or can see that there's such need right now and creating an opportunity to allow people to have fun and do good with it. And so that's how Bali Live started. And Bali Live 2 was a huge success. It was so much bigger than my tiny human brain could have ever comprehended when just allowing people to get involved and the community that rallied around this. So um, we ended up having an eight-hour virtual festival with uh, mostly Bali-based musicians and interviews with um, Neoman of the People's Market, uh, Copernic, uh, some amazing people that came in that were a, a lot of Javanese and Balinese artists. And we raised $27,000 for the People's Market. $27,000 when $2 a day is what, what Balinese live on. That is hugely impactful in creating sustainable systems uh, for the food distribution programs in Bali. So basically, uh, we Copernic connected us with Neoman of, of Pasarakya, which means uh, the people's market, in, and that's in Bahasa, Indonesia. And basically, the markets have completely crashed uh, that farmers were using to distribute their, their produce. Since 80% of income has now decreased, 80% of tourism was gone, the restaurants and the hotels are no longer buying that produce. So uh, the farmers were literally losing money with each crop that they planted. In some cases, they're just letting their crops rot in the ground, even though in other parts of Bali, there were people that were struggling to eat. And so it's about being able to distribute those resources across as the larger social aspect of a collective whole that's operating together and supporting one another during these challenging times and create that supply chain of purchasing surplus food that farmers are not able to to even pay farmers to harvest themselves and distributing that to people in need. Um, So there's three ways that that's distributed. Um, Purchasing that, that surplus food and then actually selling that online and through WhatsApp. Uh, at a small profit, it's even cheaper than you would buy at the local market because it's avoiding that middleman of actually purchasing what those tables are worth to sell that. So it's it's cheaper for individuals. Um, and then using the profit from that to be able to continue to fund a sustainable way of distributing the fund, the, the food directly to Balinese in, that are severely impacted by the COVID crisis and distributing healthy organic food to people that need this through a vetted process to ensure that this is going to, to the individuals that need it the most. So we created that supply chain and raised $27,000 to support the sustainably, which is going to really impact, um, you know, thousands of people's lives. Mm-hmm. So this literally just happened. Uh, and so we, we have our call later today to even just determine like how this is all going to happen and what, since we raised, uh, 2.7 times, 
uh, the amount of our original goal. Our original goal was 10,000 and it's just, it's overwhelming the amount of support to see how, how much goodness there is in the world and the love, uh, from our, not only our community, but beyond of mm -hmm. people all in this together. It's like inspiring to know that we're all in this together. I'm just, yeah, so impressed and in admiration of, yeah, really the magic that can happen when we all listen more and when we all sort of show up. And like you said, you got out of your own way and you just stepped forward in the best way that you could. And this is what you created. So this obviously just happened. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, like allow this to sort of marinate. And um, I don't know if just to close out the Bali live conversation, do you see like, what is your bigger vision, you know, of Bali live playing a role, being part of the fabric of Bali in months, years, decades to come, do you have like a big vision that you see? I mean, this is just such an inspiring thing to see it continue. And now that we've done the second Bali Live, this uh, is very clear that there's so much greater cause here. And it's so much fun for me uh, of just really being able to see how we can all rally together that um, this is definitely going to continue and to be a greater aspect of continued series um, and being able to rally support in a, a greater way than, than just this concert series. So we've, we're in the process of determining what that is in the greater vision, but this is definitely um, the most meaningful part of my year. Uh, and so something that we're continuing with, with Pierre, with Zest and, and with Victorian. Wow. But I think the greater thing that I want to impress upon people listening right now is that this wasn't something that started out with this grand vision. This was just a small idea of how we can, you know, make a small impact. And it was just taking that step and doing something about it. Um, and so that anyone where you are can understand what your skill set is and what's needed in the world uh, and being able to provide that understanding what you're good at and how to give that to people that, that need it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's the formula on how to make millions of dollars. That's the formula on how to like create the community and to create impact and, and whatever that looks like for people. So I highly encourage, um, everyone to reach out, uh, and do what you can to understand what you are good at and what you enjoy and what you're passionate about, what lights you up. Um, and I'm happy to be a resource and have a conversation. So just reach out to me and let's have a conversation about what that looks like for anyone, wherever you are in the world. Wisdom. Wisdom. <laughs> learning, Brown, be dropping learning wisdom every bombs. day. <laughs> learning every day. So Bali Live will continue. And I'll be so curious to hear how Bali Live continues to evolve. And now I want to shift into this work that you're currently interested in with universal basic income. And it's still kind of tying into this theme of, yeah, like the death of the tourism industry, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think I found some stat um, that international tourist arrivals are projected to plunge by 60 to 80% in 2020. And normal worldwide tourism spending is not likely to return to pre-crisis levels until 2024. Okay, so that's a ways away. And this puts as many as 120 million jobs at risk. That's mm -hmm. no small number. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so you've recently gotten involved in a new initiative called Circles, mm-hmm. which is a way to take this from the website, a way to build local economy and administering universal basic income mm-hmm. using this electronic system called the blockchain and proactively finding new ways for the Balinese to generate income in the absence of tourism. Yep. So I would just love to hear what is this program and how did you get involved with this? So again, like I just love how things work out so perfectly and beyond what I could ever plan. Like the universe has my back and it's the people in my life um, that are the most meaningful aspect. And so speaking to my friend Ruben Daniels, and he was an individual and a dear friend that I was staying with in Bali for a little bit when he was here last year. And so he's experienced Bali and he knows uh, the economy here and he's brilliant mind um, has developed this system called memory and uh, was thinking, how can this be more impactful in the lives and uh, of individuals? And would this be something that would impact the Balinese? How can we see if that would be something beneficial for them? Um, and having this be a large systematic change right now, because the world is ripe for disruption. Like everything has collapsed it's time to rebuild this up and see if we can make an uh, impactful change on a larger scale. And so universal basic income is the philosophy and the the theory of this building of financial system where each person has the right to be able to have a basic income level because they are human. And so not having any sort of what we would say in, in America, it's like a welfare system. It's that because they're a part of this, the system, they earn this amount of money each day to be able to survive. And that's the basic survival needs. And this money is generated on the blockchain. So the cryptocurrency where individuals would earn, you know, eight tokens a day, for example, and that, that money has value because we established this level of trust with one another. And we're creating this new financial system among our community, among people that, uh, have this social asset with one another and are able to sustain that ourselves. And so you're cutting out the middleman of the governments, you're cutting out the additional expenses and really in allowing and empowering people to make those choices for themselves. And so I'm in the, the current stages of researching and seeing if Bali would be a good uh, pilot test for this universal basic income. And Andrew Yang was, was a pre- presidential candidate who felt very strongly and had his main platform on establishing UBI, universal basic income in America. So it's getting a lot of press and it's a great financial system. It's just being able to understand if that is actually applicable. And so instead of coming and saying like, this is what you need and giving it to Balinese, I'm currently interviewing individuals around Bali, doing research and understanding if, you know, in the next couple of years, if this would be a good pilot program to be able to have a, a new form of currency uh, for each individual and then also would allow expats and tourists to be able to more easily exchange on the blockchain electronic payments to eliminate need for, for different banks that come through and the, the brick and mortar banks that are, it's challenging to have payments here sometimes. And I'm sure you've even looked on trying to buy things online. It's very challenging unless you have an Indonesian bank account. So creating the ease of financial systems and payments in, in Bali 
uh, in general. Mm. Yeah. Um, I love that you referenced Andrew Yang. That's how I first heard about it. Mm. So, um, I recently looked up on the world bank that no country has a permanent universal basic income in place. Although there have been some small scale test pilots and some large scale experiences. Um, I saw it happening in South Korea, Canada, even Italy, and maybe it's too early to say, because also you're in the stage of research, and I love that. Again, applying that empathy and that curiosity of like, what do the Balinese actually mean? Could this work? And I love that. Um, but at this stage, can you say like, what are some of the, for lack of a better word, like metrics or criteria for a system like this, universal basic income, but also blockchain to be established? Like what is the best environment for these two concepts to be able to take hold and have a, a chance at success? Well, that's what we're researching right now and understanding if this could be something that is sustainable. Um, I think that when we're looking at something like the United States to develop a UBI, that's a huge demographic across many different uh, parts of the socioeconomic background. I mean, look at Florida versus Texas versus New York. They're like different countries, which is why I think that uh, Bali may be a much better uh, test pilot for this. It's a contained area of 4.2 million individuals uh, that all have this very strong social network and social trust level. Like if you look at the, the assets of that make uh, UBI successful, it's really having that network of trust with individuals that you are in your community. And that's why uh, specifically working with the women, women are known as the, the CFO of the household here in Bali, because this is what my econometrics thesis was in, in college back in the day, was really understanding how the larger impact uh, for economies is based on uh, women having the best interest for their own households. And so women make decisions based on the, the good of the community and the household. Whereas if you give that power to men, typically, um, you know, in, in let's just, let's use Africa where my study was, was from and in, in Indonesia as well, that money will be spent on like cigarettes and booze and gambling, for example, rather than education and food and clothes for the, the children. So we're looking at being able to work with the systems that are already in place and understanding, okay, if we have the women in the community uh, ingrained in this system and start developing the UBI, so the universal basic income, to have that be socially accepted and, and support one another, that can spread much easier and faster, um, as well as having uh, you know, the, the detachment from a lot of the banks and the distrust of some of the banking systems. Mm -hmm. And so if we can have a really accessible way to have everything based on a mobile phone um, and have that digital wallet and be able to have that trust in that digital wallet, that would be a really great way for individuals in Bali to be able to connect with, uh, with themselves and then also with the tourist community where a lot of the dollars are coming in. And if we can have tourists that just can click on a button on their phone rather than having to go and transfer into Rupiah or do TransferWise or whatever that looks like, it could be much more effective. Um, so that's what I'm doing research on is like how many people actually have smartphones? How would people trust this in, uh, in doing financial transactions? Like what are their needs? How could this benefit them more? 
Wow. So excited to hear more of your research. Me too. I really hope that you find the assets and conditions that are conducive to these technologies and frameworks. Thank you. Especially during this time where we need it most. Yeah. Balinese need it most. Yeah. Um, and continuing the thread of <laughs> um, initiatives that you've been passionate about in Bali and along the theme of sort of death, the dying out of what's no longer serving, you've also been involved in an organization called Ground Glass, which is a social business with the aspirational goal of providing solutions that enable every individual to put holistic well-being mm -hmm. at the center of their life's journey. Mm -hmm. um, so you have been personally um, developing out their EOL end of life program. And I would just love to hear, you know, why end of life planning? Why now? What does this mean for you personally to be able to create a space for people to consciously approach death, end of life? Yeah, yeah. So Michael Hebb um, is a dear friend who has been dedicating his life for the past uh, 10 years to end of life studies and making death a more compassionate, aware conversation. Um, and had basically got this, this funding from round glass, which is, uh, and by an amazing man who just pumped, uh, the funding into allow this, uh, to come to birth. And we're calling it end of life collective EOL. Um, I was the head of business development, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic to help create those partnerships again and actually bring a marketplace and a community to this uh, whole collective to be able to provide uh, healthcare providers to the care seekers in one easy place. Because what we've found is that the death space is so segmented and it's, it's not something that people want to talk about. Um, it's, it's very fear-driven, specifically in America. Um, that people avoid these conversations and that being able to have a conversation about it and speak openly about what our wishes are, it's so much more, um, uh, makes the conversation easier and makes things line out so you can have that end of life plan and ensure that your wishes are taken care of at the right time, not be gouged by a funeral home service. For example, if you have an immediate end of life need where you're grieving and trying to be present with this and provide support to the family members, but then dealing with the logistics of things and without knowing what those plans are, um, it just becomes overwhelming for individuals. So the intention of end of life collective was to be able to make it a more compassionate conversation, have the resources so that people can start talking about this now, have conversations with family members, create that plan, explore this from a spirituality standpoint of like thousands of pieces of content in one place that's accessible for individuals to start exploring this and not have that be a taboo topic. And so, um, we launched the end of life collective, uh, at the beginning, uh, in the, yeah, a few months ago <laughs> and, wow. um, it's been, it's been an amazing experience. So I'm really glad that that's out there. Um, you can find out more EOL.community. We'll definitely include that in the show notes and I don't know why, but I'm feeling called to ask you, like, if you can recall a specific anecdote or like being able to like witness someone going through their end of life experience or like what you said, naming a wish or just being 
more at peace and more in compassion with a topic that has been written off as so taboo that people don't even go to because it comes with such a big, overwhelming sense of emotion that can't even be described, Mm -hmm. at least for me personally. But have you like witnessed people, communities Mm -hmm. in this? Yeah. Do you share that? I mean, it's fascinating how, again, things happen at the perfect time is that I've never experienced so much death in my life uh, uh, until I was actually working in the end of life collective and and helping to build this for, for our launch. My dear mentor passed away and uh, a dear friend of mine uh, had a very tragic accident happen with the the suicide of her little brother or, you know, accidental death of her little brother. Um, And to be able to be a resource for them, um, uh, just, you know, this has happened in its explosion. We didn't plan for this. We don't know what we're doing. Like, where do we even go? And to be able to say, hey, here's a resource for you. Like, what do you need? How can we be of assistance? And then connect them directly with the people that would just take care of everything and help walk through that process and hold their hand through this and like really be that human connection during this time of devastating need. It was just absolutely perfect. And I felt so, so grateful that I could be a resource in that small way um, and have people be heard and focus on so many things that are more important than like, you know, really what is the, what is the funeral process look like? Or, you know, what do we, what do we even do? And being able to share that in a way so that people can start contemplating like, okay, this is really what I want my end of life plans to be. Like what is natural burial? What is conservation burial? Like what are the difference between these? It's not just cremation. There's so many other options. And for me being able to do that process for myself, you know, I thought that I had this all figured out of like having conversations with my family about this. Um, but there's so much more that's out there and like really at the end of the day, taking care of a lot of those things so that, um, so we get what we want. Um, you know, 80% of people say they don't want to, to die in a hospital bed, but the reality is that 80% do, (laughs) um, because they haven't put those, those procedures in place and created an end of life plan. That's very clear and communicated this with their family. So the hopes are that this is really, uh, really a tool that will be able to assist people with, uh, being able to die the way that we want to. Cause we're, we're all just on this journey. We're all just, you know, as Ram Dass says, we're all just walking each other home. And so like, that's part of my life is like, I think the way that we die is the way that we live. And so I'm looking at really being able to like confront, um, my own death and be at terms and peace with that, which is why I live I do my best to live my life every day to the fullest, tell the people in my life that I love them um, and will be able to skid into my deathbed with a body well used up (laughs) and take advantage of every moment that I have this beautiful gift of life. Wow. Thank you so much for articulating that. And Mm -hmm. yeah, who would have thought to bring more consciousness and compassion to the death space. You know, I, I personally haven't ever had a chance to think about that. And I think part of my conditioning as an American is to look the other way, but I think this cannot be any more relevant, cannot be any more relevant than it is today. Right. Where the entire world is kind of looking at literal death, metaphorical death, but also right 
for the people most vulnerable, the elderly over mm-hmm. 60, like what is that experience? Mm-hmm. Whether you're 12, 20, 40, 59, wow, mm-hmm. what a way to open up humanity and really touch the deepest chords uh, and have appreciation for life throughout that process as well. That's what I think a lot of COVID is, is just fear of death. And just saying like, oh, wow, we're all vulnerable. We're all in this together. There's nothing that I can really do to guarantee that I won't die. You know, there's that little, even if it's a small percentage and, you know, understanding and seeing, it's much easier to see things from a big perspective when we're here in Bali, not in the middle of this craze and the rush and the, the riots and, um, you know, people hoarding toilet paper to make themselves feel more comfortable, like they can control something. And so I think that if we really approach death in that way and like embracing it and having this be a beautiful gift of life rather than something we're afraid of and becoming sterile against, it would be able to improve um, our response to this, this whole pandemic situation in general. Mm, Wow. The end of life collective. Mm -hmm. This is, I think this is really an important conversation to be having yeah thank you so much for doing that work i think it's it's totally like my body's like shaking you know a little bit just (sighs) even like dipping my toes in (laughs) yeah um oh it's a long it's a deep rabbit hole too (laughs) wow wow yeah but you know death is part of life exactly so like i love that quote from ram das and I'm really, yeah, in support of this work that you're doing. Yeah. And um, you mentioned kind of uh, shifting gears a little bit into now more broadly, like we're in Bali, you've done all of these projects that you have such a heart in and that are very impact focused front and center. And, um, you know, I think I watched, yeah, in that same talk that you did with your friend that you that through Tony Robbins. Yeah. Um, Naeem. Naeem. Okay. I caught a a bite where you talked about this guilt that you felt for being in Bali when COVID hit. Mm -hmm. And I I wanted to name that um, because I think it's important to talk about that. I felt the same exact way. Like, who am I to be on this beautiful island with all these freedoms in a time where people that I love, that I know are stuck in boxes, losing their jobs, like have no idea where they can go for fresh air. And it was really strange to be aware of that, yet still in a reality that is not that. Mm -hmm. And so maybe, yeah, could you share just how that was for you? Because after that, I do want to do a little gratitude sharing about Bali. Yes. Yes. I mean, that's exactly how I felt was just guilty of having this opportunity to be in nature and with such beautiful culture and people and community where, um, you know, there's a lot of theories of why COVID didn't hit very hard here. Um, but I realized that I was getting, I felt just completely helpless and that I was getting into this like depressive mode of just not, not being that vibrant self, even though it was just such, so much beauty around me. And it's like, this is not the way to be. It's like, feel this fully and then let that feeling embrace in my body, but then like move forward and get out of this. And that's where Bali Live came from. So instead of feeling helpless, it was like, okay, now I want to do something about this. I want to be able to get outside of myself and help other people. And that's, that's what gets out of this 
insecure feeling of my own guiltiness and being able to like give this gift of this opportunity that I've been giving and pass that on to other people around the world and involve other people who may be stuck in their homes, the opportunity to participate in something fun of the blessings that we have here in Bali. And even that, if that's through online and witnessing a Balinese ceremony online and some amazing Balinese rock stars and being able to participate, to contribute, to make a bigger difference. Um, you know, that's what's helped me to feel empowered and to pass that empowerment on. Really transforming that sense of guilt into gold, you yeah. know, that real sense of, okay, I'm here for a reason. Let's like really step into the mission of that, um, and, and do something powerful. Mm -hmm. And along those lines, I always ask this question as we come to a close, um, what are you most grateful to Bali for? You can even frame it as like a, a love note to mm. Mama Bali. And I think more than anyone, you've done so much work around being connected to that. And I would love to give you space to share your little love note. Uh, a dear friend asked me why I thought Bali was so special. And I was articulating as to why this island is just so magical and why it is just... Uh, out of all the places that traveled around the world, why this feels like home to me. And I think there's so many different aspects to that. But um, the most prominent thing that comes to mind is just the beautiful spirituality that uh, is ingrained in every part of life from the Balinese of really living uh, that that state of, of oneness with the world and with nature uh, predominantly, uh, you know, honoring the trees and the rocks and the ancestors and giving gratitude for this beautiful gift that we've been given of living in harmony with the land. And being able to cultivate uh, very, very prevalent spirits that are here and, and calling that in with, you know, Niepi and all of the different ceremonies that, that happen um, and having that be a way of life. Um, it just feels, uh, it feels like everything is manifested so much quicker here and that this is an opportunity in this feminine island to see my own programs come up and be able to shift very quickly. And so that personal development for me, which is so important of being the best version of myself is, uh, is very apparent here that if something isn't working for me, that's going to show up right in my face. Um, and being able to have the opportunity to grow as a result of that. Um, and I think that that's what the second aspect that I love so much about Bali is that that aspect of the spirituality attracts an incredible community of people. Um, the expat community here of just people who have that connection, um, not only with a, a deeper sense of, of connection to selves and spirituality, but uh, are amazing entrepreneurs that are committed to larger social impact and doing things with that are beyond the, the, the alt normal, right? <laughs> and so having that community of people that, um, that really, I, I feel seen here and I feel like I can see people and, uh, even though we're so far away from our original home on the other side of the world, having that connection with people in a beautiful land, uh, surrounded by spirituality, uh, is, is just, uh, amazing. So very grateful to you, Mama Bali, for all the smiles, for all the love, for the happiness, and uh, that has allowed me to really get outside of my own head and into my body and into celebrating this beautiful gift of life together. Mm. 
So beautiful. Mama Bali can hear that. <laughs> Thank you, Mama Bali. <laughs> and to close, I always like to ask with everything that you've shared, everything that's come through, everything that you embody and really hold true to you, what is one message or question that you can leave our audience with today to reflect on beyond this conversation? Mm. So one thing that I would say is uh, that we touched on earlier uh, of just really understanding ourselves and really understanding what we're good at and what we truly want and being able to get outside of our own self-limiting beliefs to make that happen and to just do it, to step into the unknown and to allow and surrender to that trust that the universe has for each of us, like really just going for it and saying, this is the life that I want. I'm going to be able to make this happen. And it doesn't have to be overnight, but just taking those steps and just taking one step into the unknown and seeing how that goes and adjusting. You don't have to have it all figured out. Like we know this, we know this out there, but then to actually implement that and to know that life is so short, we could literally die later on today and saying, if that's the case, like, how do I want my life to really look? Um, and taking those steps. And it's funny to reflect that, you know, a few years ago I'd said, you know, I would love to live in Bali. Um, and now that's actually happened. I wish I would have taken those steps back then, you know? So my message is to, to just go for it and to, to live your best life now. Oh man, that was really profound. Thank you so much, Shonda, for, for being with us today and for all of the work and all of the heart that you bring to your life and the life of those who are so lucky to come into contact with yours. Thank you so much, Tiffany. I really appreciate it. This has been amazing to have this conversation with you and to reflect upon this. And I have just so much gratitude for, for everyone in my life and for you and for Mama Bali. And I'm thankful to be able to share this, this story with the people listening today. Yes. So we are going to definitely put Shonda's um, links and everything so you can continue to follow her journey. Um, she's opened up so many pathways to great work. So we really want to stay in touch with all of it. Um, and again, if you feel uplifted and shifted in some way, I know I do, please, please give us some love, a subscribe, a share, a review, again, to amplify these stories and to really highlight the the work of activism that people in Bali like Shonda are doing. So thank you so much guys for listening and we will see you next week. We love you. We love you. <laughs> <laughs>